Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque podcast. On this episode of a Valentine series, we're looking at royal pairings who didn't take to each other. And in the game of royal Tinder, we would call that swipe left situation. Alas, all these couples had to stay married, at least for a while. Please welcome back the wonderful historians Chris Riley, Clemmy Bennett, Leia Redmond Chang, and Catherine Curzon. And first, we're going to talk to Chris Riley, and we'll talk to him about Empress Matilda and Geoffrey Ovanjou and why they hated each other. Tell us a little bit about Matilda's first marriage for context. Yeah, so Matilda is the only legitimate daughter of, of Henry I of England, and by default, she's one of the most sought after and kind of important potential brides in Europe at this time. And Henry I doesn't really have many allies at the start of his reign. He's already managed to annoy his brother and have him captured and put in prison. So he's not exactly on great terms with France either, as always. So he looks to the kind of the biggest power in Europe, which is, I'll call it the Holy Roman Empire, but it's not really the Holy Roman Empire at this point. It's the German Empire, the, the Romans, there's so many different names, it's very confusing. But ultimately, as a eight-year-old child, or roughly eight, Matilda is shipped off to Germany to marry uh, Henry V. Not that Henry V. <laughs> Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And this is a really, really, I think, a really core thing for Matilda. I think it's very, very central to who she is later in life. She is very popular by by all accounts. She's she's a very good empress. Um, even from a young age, she seems to have the aptitude for it. She um, is left in charge of Italy by Henry as a teenager. I think there's a there's, there's something silly like 15, 20 years between them at this mm. point. So the, the the idea of conception is is very far into the future. Um, so it isn't expected that they would conceive a child anytime soon, but she's taught language, she's taught politics, you know, in Germany at this time and in, in the future Holy Roman Empire, um, women and empresses are treated better than French queens and French princesses and, you know, in, in England and in, in the Spanish kingdoms. So she's treated with, with serious respect and she's educated in a way that is fitting of someone of her rank. But quite upsettingly, she isn't educated or even looked after by anyone of her own people. The the English who travel with her are swiftly kind of ushered away and she's raised very much as an empress of Germany. But unfortunately, her marriage to Henry V does not last very long. He likely dies of cancer in 1125. And Matilda is left without a child. She's left without really a role the Holy Roman Empire, that the, the crown of, of Germany isn't always hereditary. There are electoral states um, that decide the next emperor. Quite a lot of the time it is a son, but Henry V didn't have one, so it, it goes elsewhere. And Matilda is very, very fond of being the empress. She retains the title of empress for her whole life, but she's needed back home, really. Mm. Her, her father, Henry I, has lost his son. William, uh, in the White Ship Disaster. And if you don't know about that, there's a great episode on that um, that you can go and listen to. He loses his only legitimate son, leaving Matilda as his only legitimate heir. Obviously, it gets very complex with the fact that she's a woman. But he needs her back in England, in Normandy, because he needs to figure out his, his, his legacy and how best to kind of leave his father's kingdom intact. In, in so, uh, But yeah, her first marriage to Henry is is really important and, for me, frames the rest of her life. So when she fills out the forms later in life and the <laughs> drop-down menu, so you have the mist, missus, doctor, empress. Empress. 
Yeah. Professor. There's only one choice. Let's go for Empress. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> got it. Also, would you like with that title? She's, she's very fond of being Empress. Yes. <laughs> I, I would think... keep Empress. Yes. I would keep her. <laughs> for life. Actually, that's quite good because that goes on to the fact that when she's matched with Joffrey, she's disgusted at mm. being a countess. Yeah. So, Geoffrey of Anjou is a, a count, which is, you know, not a duke, not a mm. king. It's certainly not an emperor. So, you know, it's like three full social rungs down. But, I mean, Geoffrey as a, as, a, as a man, I say man, he's about 15 at the time when they get married. And I think she's, she's 25, 25, 30. She's, she's a good 10, 15 years older than this kid who has just become the Count of Anjou because his father, Folk, leaves to become King of Jerusalem. You know, this is the ultimate political marriage, really. She's gone from a political marriage that seems to be, you know, very fond on, on both sides to a complete and utter political marriage that her father has constructed to, to better serve him. For, for context, Anjou mm-hmm. is, a, is a small county um, that borders Normandy just to its south next to kind of Maine and Brittany. And it's the Angevins... And the Normans have never got on. They've always been fighting over the same bits of land. And this marriage is not popular. Henry I's barons and his court are not a fan of Anjou and Geoffrey, even though he's a kid. I don't really know how you can be that against a 15-year-old. But now 15-year-olds are, yeah, I get it. Um, (laughs) So this isn't good for Matilda. This isn't good Mm. for the Norman aristocracy. Great for Geoffrey. He gets to marry up considerably. But these two do not get on. It is not a it's not a love match at all. They reluctantly marry in eleven twenty eight, eleven twenty seven, eleven twenty eight at Le Mans. And yeah, it just doesn't go very well for them, I guess in a in a personal sense, but mm-hmm. dynastically it's a really important relationship. Yeah. They do manage to have children even though they don't like each other. Yeah. Yeah, they did their royal duty uh, a few times. So they didn't just do it once, so they must have liked each other a little bit. Because <laughs> um, they got it, I guess, for, from a medieval point of view, they got it right first time. They had a son mm-hmm. who they call Henry, shock, um, the future Henry II, and then they have several other children. But these, these pregnancies are really, really hard on Matilda. Um, she suffers greatly to the point where the expectation is that she will die. I think it's after Henry's birth or, or after her, his brother, Geoffrey, who's named after their father. The pregnancy goes, or the birth, sorry, goes that poorly that it is expected that Matilda will die. She doesn't, um, and she continues to live. But these pregnancies are, is a bad is is a bad for Matilda, and they they cause her to really lose steam at the point where she really needed to be the most active in her life, um, which of course is when her father Henry the first dies, and Stephen of Blois, her cousin, is able to get to England first and claims the throne and the treasury and. You know, the rest is a 19-year-long civil war called the anarchy. So, yeah, it's a successful marriage, but not based on anything other than politics and a requirement, I would say. Did Geoffrey have any um, involvement in the anarchy? Yeah, he, he plays a remarkably large part in the anarchy when you probably wouldn't assume he does because of how little him and Matilda got on. They, they separated mm. pretty much straight away. Throughout the anarchy, he is a kind of a key military leader for, for Matilda and later for, for Henry 
He selfishly, but then also not. He is able to pretty much wrestle all of Normandy off Stephen and for a very short time becomes Duke of Normandy uh, before immediately giving the title to his son, Henry, who then mm. becomes Duke of Normandy and later becomes King of England. So he pretty much is the most successful member of the of the family when it comes to the anarchy. And he also gives the family their very famous name, Plantagenet, because apparently he wore like a white flower in his in his hat or on his shield and Plantagenista, which is probably a terrible way of a terrible way of saying the Latin. It's like a white flower um, that he's kind of synonymous with. So he he, he gives the family the, the the name and and he gives them the gift of Normandy. But he he doesn't last very long. He dies fairly quickly. He doesn't see his son become king. But it's through his marriage to Matilda and through his conquest and his support for his son that we get three hundred years of Plantagenet history. So that there's a massively important relationship that can't really be be understated. Yes, they didn't get on. What they achieved together through their children is is remarkable. A necessary evil for us. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Matilda lives a tough life. It shouldn't be that the best and probably happiest time of her life was when she was a child in a foreign country married to a man, mm. you know, considerably older than her, but it, it probably was. The anarchy was incredibly tough for Matilda. She was fighting a war she wasn't allowed to fight because she was a woman. She was almost crowned as Lady of the English because she couldn't be queen and then everybody turned their back on her. And then I guess the the most poignant thing for Matilda is how she's remembered. I think a tomb reads, I'll get it wrong, but daughter, wife and mother of Henry, great by birth, greater by marriage, greatest in her offspring. And that shows how she is remembered in relation to the men in her life when realistically she was almost the first ever crowned female monarch of England. And that was based on what she wanted, not what somebody told her to do. Or like she wasn't forced into a position like, say, poor Lady Jane Grey was just thrust into this position where she would be she would be crowned queen. Matilda wanted to be queen. She never got rid of the title of empress for a reason. She knew her place and no count was going to tell her otherwise. She didn't. Mm. She didn't care who Jeffrey was. She knew what she needed to do with him and, and his value. But yeah, I I have a lot of respect for Matilda. But yeah, Jeffrey's a the definition of a necessary evil. I think. No, he's not even remembered because he's not even there on the tombstone. I was gonna say yeah. Jeff yeah. <laughs> gets left out. He, yeah. That's a shame, actually. I feel bad for. Yeah, because... he doesn't. He doesn't get remembered fondly. No, and. If we didn't have him, we wouldn't have Henry II. Interesting thing about Geoffrey, though, and I don't know how I feel about this, but apparently he had an affair with Eleanor of Aquitaine when she was Queen of France. Oh, I remember reading that. Which, I guess for context, is wild, um, because she later marries his son, Henry, Uh um, and he's almost kidnapped by his other son, Geoffrey. But yeah, apparently he was a bit of a a womaniser, which is not a shock. The rumours are that she had an affair with him, but there's a rumour that she had an affair with like everyone. So Her uncle, but uh, Kate Baldwin. Saladin, who was yeah. 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Raymond of Antioch. The handsome yeah. of Antioch with the best the best nickname. That's the one you want, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's kind of the the sticking point for me on Jeffrey and why I probably don't like him. I mean, uh, not that I believe it happened. <laughs> I don't think so. He does have lots of mistresses, but mm. I, I feel bad he has an unhappy marriage. I wouldn't blame him. To be honest, I wouldn't blame Pod either if mm. she had. Like I said, this is the definition of a political marriage, so it was it was expected mm. and assumed that you know 
love and sex. It doesn't go into marriage 100% of the time. So, yeah, very, very unhappy, but very prosperous relationship. Was she ever going to marry again or did, was there any day that she may have had a secret love affair with under a tree? <laughs> no trees this time, as far as I know. No. <laughs> I'm sure she did, and, I'm, and I hope she did. I hope she got to have yeah. a little bit of happiness in her life, but she had her son. You know, she was mm. never crowned, but her son, Henry, became King of England, and he trusted her to look after Normandy until she died. And, you know, she probably just wanted to rest. I always wonder that the one kind of question I have is what was the dynamic between the Empress Matilda and Eleanor of Aquitaine? Because those yeah. two two women are cut from the same cloth for me. Um, and I just really would like to know what that mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship was like. So I bet mm. it was tense, yeah. serious, yeah. serious BD. Serious BD. Now let's go forward a few centuries and ask Clemmy Bennett about the last couple's descendant, one Henry VIII and his fourth marriage, though Henry himself would call it his second. What about Anne of Cleves? Yes, but it's like, again, it's so much more. It's so much more than that, actually. She was not ugly. This is like the most, the biggest myth about Anne. She was not ugly, but she failed somewhere, and she failed at courtly love, and that was. That was her massive failure. Henry decided to meet her a little bit earlier than planned. So that was late in 1539. He basically surprised her. He was kind of obsessed with courtly love and chivalric stories and all this. Literally, he just loved these stories. He loved that. Chivalric stories said that true love could be recognized through a disguise. And so what did Henry do? He just came to surprise Anne. He was disguised, so he had like a cloak and everything. Here you really have to imagine a 20-something woman who speaks like 10 words of English. Uh, she's just uh, traveled from Germany and she's here. And then you have, I think there were four or five. Um, anyway, there's like a few men bursting in the room and they, all, they have cloak and a hood and everything. And then the tall one, let's call him like that, reaches to her and kisses her. You have to put yourself in her shoes. She she pushes him back, and then she starts being uh, annoyed in German. I think she probably uh, was swearing, but <laughs> don't speak German, so I don't know. And Henry again, like his bubble was burst, his ego was bruised, and had not recognized him. And he was so hurt that suddenly this beautiful, perfect princess that he had in mind, like his his true love, his. His new wife, in his head, she was his second wife, not his fourth. He was uh, devastated that she had not recognized him. And worse, that she had sem- seemed appalled by him. And so he went out, changed back into his fancy clothes, and uh, and then went to introduce himself. It was done. I would say that Anne's queenship had ended before it had even begun. Hmm. But she was not ugly. She did not smell. I think if one of them smelled, it was not Anne. The only thing we can say about her not being in the Henry's taste is that she was quite tall. She was very tall, actually, for a woman back then. And Henry liked petite women. So, and so, yeah, she was she was quite different to what he was accustomed. But she was not ugly. And had she recognised him, I do think that things could have been very, very different. Did she like him? Is there any proof that she liked him or...? 
Does she absolutely Actually, hate him? No, honestly. There's there's not much that can be found on, on Anne's true feelings for Henry. I mean, there's a record of her fainting when she was told that Henry wanted to annul the marriage. Hmm. What is true? What is just an act, a clever act, you know, to mm. not end up like Catherine of Aragon? This is difficult to know. I think that she would have preferred to remain queen, definitely. Mm. Uh, her plan would have been to stay queen. But this is this is very difficult to know her true feelings. Her new title was the King's Beloved Sister, which I find hilarious. She maneuvered this whole thing very very cleverly knowing how she really felt towards him is a bit difficult she came to court uh she famously came to court uh, for christmas uh when catherine howard was queen and they danced together so she she came in and out she was there but she was not she did not spend that much time with henry afterwards it was more about her title and she was invited to court sometimes but she had she had her separate household. She had her own houses. I don't think they had a very very close relationship, despite you know this whole beloved sister thing. I always think you were saying about her fainting. I would have fainted as well because I mean Anne Boleyn, the last divorce, Anne Boleyn got her head chopped off. I would have fainted. I would have been terrified. So I can imagine that being true. To be fair, do you think uh, Anne of Cleves being a German princess? And not one of Henry's subjects saved her in the end. Yes, she was a German princess, so she was quite protected in terms of international politics. Henry absolutely needed allies, and he could not just execute a princess of the blood. That was just that was mm. not uh, possible. But also, Anne had not done anything legally. She had not. She didn't do anything wrong, and. What she did right was to say to Henry, I'm devastated, but okay, let's annul the marriage. <laughs> like, I love you so much. I love you so much. I want to stay to, to stay as your wife. And I'm just so sad, but you know better. So let's do like you want to do. If you wanted to survive, this is how you had to speak to Henry. And did exactly what she needed to do to survive. So I don't think she was ever in any danger because um, she just she agreed to what Henry wanted and she was fine. She was always going to be fine. Now let's turn our ears towards Scotland. Leia Redmond Chang is with us to discover the secrets of Mary Queen of Scots and her marital history. Mary's first marriage didn't end very well. Because of the first marriage ending, that's the first time she met Lord Dunley, isn't it? The first time that he met her was when Francis had died. And, you know, sort of the irony there is that she wasn't paying much attention because Mary was very, very distraught, you know, after Francis's death for all sorts of reasons. She just didn't pay much attention. You know, she was undoubtedly getting, you know, a number of visits. He mm. was just another, you know, diplomatic visitor. And then she meets him again, I believe. He is sent to welcome her back. Uh, his parents send him to Scotland when she returns. But again, Mary, you know, is distracted at the time because she's very much focusing on hopefully uh, what she would have considered a, a much better marriage, you know, with Spain or with, you know, a royal prince who's already in line to the throne of whichever kingdom would, you know, she thought was good enough for her. So, you know, she's not really paying attention. And I, and I think that that might just put the lie a little bit to this story that Mary was just passionately in love with Darnley. 
if she did at some point fall passionately in love with Darnley, it definitely wasn't love at first sight. Mm. <laughs> um, it was something that developed and might have developed for, for all sorts of reasons other than just the boy himself. Yes, because you're always kind of a told that that it was a love at first sight. He was he was a hottie, and everybody was told for him, kind of a thing. And it, it was, yeah, and you know, maybe he was. <laughs> I'm sure, he was. <laughs> you never know with these portraits, right? No. Like these, these portraits are always, you know, done to to make everyone look wonderful, as wonderful as they possibly could at the time. Mm. So you know, who knows? Who knows the reality? She doesn't seem to have fallen for him right away. Even when they do meet for real before she marries him in the months, it still took a little while. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't love at first sight. So what changes and why does she see him basically and think, oh, that's the guy for me? Yeah, well, so first of all, all the other marriages aren't working out. That is how I see Mary. You know, Mary... It really was raised to be a queen consort. She's really, you know, Mary really does think a lot of herself. She's quite arrogant. And she believes because she has been taught, I mean, we have to forgive her this because yeah. she was taught to think this way. She was taught that she deserved the best. And for her, the best had been the future king of France, but then he dies. So what she really wants to do is marry the next king of France, Charles, right? But he's only 10 and there's no way that Catherine de Medici was going to allow that to happen. So then the next best thing would have been Don Carlos of Spain, because Spain is another very wealthy, very you know prestigious kingdom, a very ancient kingdom. But that doesn't work out either, even though Mary tries twice to make that happen. And everybody else, it isn't quite good enough, you know, for her. So, you know, the thing is, I don't think that she necessarily thought that Darnley was good enough, but he did have a claim to the English throne. And by the time, you know, she meets him for this third time, she's very much interested in the English succession. She wants that for herself. And she wants it because it is what she thinks she deserves. You know, she's always been taught to think that that was that was hers. And so now she wants, you know, another way. She wants to find a way to to claim the succession as her own. And she thinks that Darnley can help her. So. I think what's going on with Mary is a lot of displaced emotion. At the time, she's still very young. And I know that I had to work to remember that a lot because, you know, what we're taught, you know, I I often feel like, you know, when we're taught history from 500 years ago, we always imagine them as if they're they're all 40. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about it, maybe because it was so long ago, they just seem kind of old, but she's still very young. I really think that, you know, she kind of suffered from this whirlwind of emotions. She's a very emotional person with very little guidance, you know, from kinder and wiser advisors. You know, she sees Darnley again this third time, and and he seems to be her ticket to a number of things. And to Darnley's credit, he was charming. He was charming. He was tall. He was blonde. He spoke French extremely well. He was fluent. There are a lot of things about Darnley that make me wonder if Mary didn't see in him kind of a, almost a French connection. He is Scottish and English, but he has that French upbringing that she had. So she would have seen in him something of a kindred soul. And plus he's about the same age. So it it makes sense, you know, that she would pretty quickly feel very comfortable with him and allow herself to be convinced or even convince herself 
that he was the right man for her. There was a lot of challenges, a massive one being Elizabeth I around her marriage to Dan Lake. What was it that Elizabeth I didn't like about it and what about the other people around who didn't like the match? Well, I think the biggest thing for Elizabeth is that both of them do have this claim to the English succession. And, you know, Elizabeth is so nervous about that. She really is. I, you know, I do feel for Elizabeth Tudor because I feel like her first, I don't know, several years, decade, you know, of her reign was just filled with anxiety. I mean, she knew that many people around her, you know, even if they were her supporters, understood that her right to the throne was questionable. And it was certainly questionable in Catholic eyes. And both Mary and Darnley are Catholic and they both have claims to the throne. And Mary, even before she was betrothed to Francis II of France, the French were making claims on Mary's behalf to the English throne. So Elizabeth knows that is that this is what Mary wants. You know, Mary has made it very plain that she wants Elizabeth to give her the succession. And Mary tried to be nice about it. You know, she tried to ask, you know, she tried to convince Elizabeth that, you know, they could be friends, that Mary wasn't going to do anything to challenge Elizabeth's right to the throne at the moment. But then when she makes this marriage with Darnley, Elizabeth takes that as a hostile act because Darnley should have asked permission from Elizabeth to marry, but he doesn't do it. And so, so Elizabeth takes this as a hostile act, which she had every right to do. And that is, yes, the source of the animosity. What about the Scottish lords? Um, did they like the match? No. <laughs> They don't like Darnley. <laughs> I mean, he really does seem like this, this sort of arrogant fool. They don't like him because he's Catholic. And they also don't like him because his father, who is Scottish, you know, he had, he had betrayed the Scots. He had gone and, and left Scotland to fight on behalf of Henry VIII. And so, you know, they really see him as a turncoat. So when he comes back, the father, I mean, with Darnley, you know, there's a lot of fear that he's not only reintroducing this Catholic element, he, he's, he's bringing it back into play in Scotland, but that also he's sort of disrupting the hierarchy of the powers that be. And so they don't like this. And then they find Darnley to be completely, completely arrogant. You know, they already don't really trust Mary at this point, the Scots lords. You know, they're, they're really looking for you know, what they can gain from her reign. And so, you know, when she brings Darnley into the mix, this is disrupting, you know, how they thought it was going to go. And they see Darnley and his father as mostly looking out for themselves and not for the interests of the other Scots lords. So they get married anyway, and it seems fine to begin with. But it really does fall apart very quickly. I mean, she gets pregnant very quickly. But how does it fall apart and what are the reasons for it? It falls apart for the very same reasons that the Scots Lords don't like Darnley. I mean, he's very interested in himself. So, uh, you know, I actually think that in some ways, Darnley and Mary are quite similar to each other. You know, they were raised, they were spoiled children, both of them. They were very entitled you know, they, they really believed that they both deserved, you know, a crown or two or three. And when you have very similar personalities like that, right, they don't really yeah. complement each other. Often they fight against each other. 
And I think that Darnley, he was really pushed by his parents to think this way, you know, had assumed that when he married Mary, he was going to adopt the role of husband and king and that he was going to be able to rule. And Mary had completely different ideas. She, you know, she was the sovereign queen. And so she thought she should retain authority. And, you know, she heard also from the Scots lords, she, she understood their suspicions. And so for just to sort of maintain control over her court, she needed to keep Darnley in his place. And, and he didn't like that. You know, he's a young, arrogant man who just thought that by marrying her was his path to the Scottish throne. So he doesn't like that. And then there does seem to have been some jealousy with between Darnley, or I should say one directional jealousy. Darnley was jealous of Mary's relationship with her secretary, Rizzio. Rizzio, the Italian secretary who was very close to Mary, had control of her French ciphers. So he was in control of all her correspondence to France. And she really used him as an advisor. And Darnley became very jealous of that relationship, in part because the Scots lords encouraged him to be jealous of it. You know, they were trying to kind of sow the seeds of discontent <laughs> in the marriage. <laughs> so, yes, you know, it, it just I think this is a this is a question of incompatible personalities because they're too similar to each other. And, uh, you know, power plays. Mm. When the child is born, Mary kind of uh, alludes to the two of them getting back together. She kind of uh, keeps Darnley on side, especially after he murders Ritzel. Do you think she had in mind of a way trying to control him? I think that Mary didn't have a plan. <laughs> She's going to wing it. <laughs> no, yes, I, you know, I don't think that she ever had a plan. You know, mm. I, I think that Mary is very reactive mm. and she tries to please people. She often tries to please her lords by buying them off or giving gifts. But she's never, you know, as far as I can tell, she doesn't seem to be thinking two or three steps ahead. Yeah. And with Darnley, she seems to kind of give him the cold shoulder. It's almost a kind of passive aggressiveness, you know, to, yeah. to kind of show him that she's unhappy with him, hoping that he's eventually going to fall in line. And she doesn't seem to realize that this actually just makes him more vulnerable to outside players who do not have Mary's best interests at heart. Yeah. It makes him more vulnerable as a potential weapon against her. So, you know, she assumes, and again, I, I do think she was taught to believe this. She assumes that, you know, she's gotten married. She's had the child. This child is the son. This is exactly what she's supposed to do as a queen. You know, it's not even like she had a daughter. She had a son, you know, mm. the perfect heir. So she thinks that this is going to pave the way to more success in her kingdom, but it doesn't do it. And it, in part, it, it's I think it's because she's not a great reader of personalities, right? You know, yes. she doesn't she doesn't quite see the people who are around her for what they truly are, including Darnley. So it comes to a very brutal end. They should have gotten divorced. But then even as I say that, of course, that never would have happened for a host of reasons, but mostly because Mary is very proud. It would have been very difficult for her to, to admit that she had made a mistake. I always think she probably wouldn't have divorced him just for James's sake as well, because... Yes. You, it would have been illegitimate. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Stanley dies in very brutal circumstances, and Mary's often 
people blame her for it, that she was involved in it. But as you said earlier, she wasn't very good at forward thinking. Do you think she really masterminded that? There's so much that we just can't know. And and a lot of it has to do with with letter writing, actually, and the conditions of letter writing. So when Mary writes a letter to France explaining what has happened, she actually gets the date of Darnley's death wrong. How does one interpret this? Do you read that as, you know, she sort of made a mistake, she knew what was going on, and she's made a mistake, or she's trying to mislead her readers? Or was she in such a state of distress? And was there so much chaos that she just heard the wrong thing? You know, I I feel like there are a number of different ways Mm. to interpret this. I tend to think that that she didn't, that she didn't mastermind it. And I don't know if that's just wishful thinking on on my part, but that idea that she did mastermind it feeds into the question of whether or not she was complicit with Bothwell. And I tend to think she was not. So that's why I back up and tend to think that, you know, no, actually she, she didn't know about Darnley and she's already being used, you know, at the moment of his death. So there's one other little thing that I'm going to bring up that has to do with another queen. You know, Elizabeth Tudor is sometimes blamed for this as well, right? Yeah. But another queen in the 19th century, there was a little murmur about this, was whether or not Catherine de' Medici knew of the plot beforehand. And I will say there's a very strange letter. And when I was writing the book, I debated whether or not to like put this in a footnote. And I ultimately decided not to because it's just... One letter, and there's only one scholar who mentions it, where she reports to the correspondent about the death of Darnley. And uh, she just mentions it in in one line. She says, oh, you know, the fool, something to the extent of, well, he was such a foolish boy. It's not a surprise that this happened to him. And then she just goes on to talk about other things, about how the house she's staying in is so comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just that one line. And I sat with that letter for a very long time, again, wondering what was being communicated there. Is she notifying her correspondent about something they both know, you know, just sort of confirming the fact that it's happened? She definitely doesn't seem surprised, but is her lack of surprise because she knew what was coming or because she had no respect for Darnley? And she knew the chaos in Scotland and she expected that this was going to happen. So again, like we just don't know how to read some of these words because these people are such masters of, you know, hidden meanings. Yeah. Is there anything we can say about Mary and Dan Lee's relationship that was romantic, that was a love story, anything at all? Uh I think there was probably a very short period of time where they did enjoy each other's company. It was like a crush, you know, and it was Mm -hmm. probably also very passionate. You know, these are two young people. You know, she didn't have much of a sex life before Darnley. And so, you know, why not? Yeah, you know, he's very attractive. She's very attractive. So I am sure for this, you know, maybe let's say six weeks, (laughs) 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 leading up to their marriage, she hoped for the best and and she thought she was, you know, probably getting some love or at least romance along with a very good, savvy political match. But it was not it was not long lived. 
Should a hot boy summer and then swipe left. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Summer love. That's basically yes. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We call that a fling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a fling. She was flung. End of. Yes. Flung. She was flung. Yes. Oh, yeah. poor Mary. Yeah. She, she should have listened to the Scottish lords. They don't always get it right, but in this. Well, and she should have listened to her uncle, the Cardinal mm-hmm. of Guise, because mm-hmm. he didn't think that marriage was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, and he wanted her to marry many other people before she married him. I can always see her as being, she's now got all this control. She was very controlled in France. She didn't even get to pick her first husband. I feel like this was like a little rebel in her when she married yeah. him. And then she, she was like, all right, okay, I should have listened to everybody around me. Yes, yes, yeah. But I, I really do feel for Mary because I just feel like, she was sort of put in that position on some level, you know, it certainly wasn't intentional, but she was not raised to succeed as a sovereign queen. She was raised to succeed as a queen consort. And she did, you know, when she was a consort, she shone, right? She knew how to do that. I'm inclined to say it's not entirely her fault. Please welcome back Catherine Curzon as we talk about Catherine Negri and her lovely husband, Peter. (laughs) Mmm. How were they married and why? Because Catherine is not your usual princess, is she? No, she was a um, poor but noble family, but she had a very well-connected mother. And they met when they were children, Catherine and Peter, and Catherine, who was a bit of a character even from youth, hated Peter on first sight. But she was pretty canny when it came to um, who was in charge. And she knew Empress Elizabeth was someone that could be quite useful. So it was agreed that Catherine and Peter would be married because it was basically a kind of harmless match, if you like. So to match to someone who was of the right sort of blood, but not from one of the great houses, meant that there wasn't going to be any rivalry from the other great houses Mm. who hadn't been chosen. But they underestimated her because they got this teen bride and they kind of thought she'd be easy to mould and shape. But instead, she and Empress Elizabeth got on really well. And Empress Elizabeth was really the power broker. So it turned out to be quite quite a different situation than the one that her husband had been expecting. Obviously, you get the great the TV show and people who maybe don't know anything about Catherine the Great and Peter think that they had this kind of a like love underneath all that craziness. But there wasn't any at all, was there? No, no. On the one side, it was like we've seen lots of these marriages that are marriages because that's what you did. Hmm. And these were good matches that were made for various reasons. Some people that we've spoken about in other episodes were matched because they were both powerful dynasties, others because one was powerful and wanted a non-threatening match. But yeah, there was... There was there was no great love affair here. No, definitely not. It was no. So unfortunately, although it might be better for the fiction, no. Because it is really weird when I know about Catherine the Great. She's one of my favourites. But when I'm watching the Great, I want them to get back together. I want them to be together because it's they have this really cute relationship on the TV show. But then when you read about her, he wasn't that nice of a person either, was he? No, no. And I think we've got to remember that. I mean, at all courts, there's a huge amount of ambition. But there was a really great amount of ambition at this court. It was also a court that was marked by, as I'm sure you know, because you're a fan of us, marked by a lot of politicking and moving and shaking and backbiting. And, you know, we think that Versailles was kind of fueled by that kind of thing. But the Russian court really gave it a run for its money. Taking it to the next level. Okay, tell us a little bit about Peter's aunt. 
Empress Elizabeth is regarded as one of the greatest Russian monarchs. She was the daughter of Peter the Great, and she saw quite a tumultuous time before she came to the throne, which quite obviously quite a lot of Russian monarchs saw quite a tumultuous time before they came to the throne. But she was a kind of continuation of Peter's reign. So there was a stability that she provided. And that is one thing that did make her popular because obviously he had done a huge amount of modernization and she was seen as kind of keeping the torch burning. But she was also a very strong personality in her own right. So she wasn't someone that we would see being hugely influenced by advisors. Her decisions were very much her decisions. And as we were saying, in a court that was very sort of politically driven and had a huge amount of ambition and moving and shaking, she was someone who didn't tend to sort of sway in the wind, if you like. In some ways, she was quite intransigent. But she also read the, led the empire through two enormous conflicts. And again, she seems quite steady in influence, but also someone who was believed to really have the interests of Russia at heart. And as I say, to continue that legacy of her father of modernization and crucially expanding and if you like making the Russian empire into something really great. Do you think she's seen like any kind of Peter the Great qualities in Peter the Third? Well that's a good question. She was quite a tricky person to please the more we know about because she did have such strong ambition and she really wanted to cling on to power for as long as she could. Um, She chose Peter to be her heir so we assume she did see some qualities in him. And I think what she hoped as well was that she had managed to kind of mould him into that continuation again. So it was Mm. going to be not someone who was going to do anything outrageous or anything off beam, but someone who was going to continue again that legacy that was really driving Russia forward. Because as we know, you know, Russia moved on huge amounts during Peter the Great's reign and then her reign. And I think she saw that as someone who would both keep the ship steady, but also keep it moving forward. Yeah. So nothing controversial, but strength and stability. And he ends up being a very controversial figure. He does, yeah. <laughs> Which obviously nobody saw come in. <laughs> what was Catherine and Peter's relationship like at the beginning? And then how did it evolve? Catherine and Peter's relationship at the beginning, as we said, when they very met for the very first time, they did not get on. There was a sense of this being something that had to happen. It was very much driven by ambition, we were saying. Well, she arrived in Russia at the age of 15, um, but she was already at that point quite a switched-on gal. So we do see some brides who were quite innocent. If we think of some of the Hanoverian brides, who were absolutely sort of driven into the lion's den. People like Marie Antoinette, who, of course, was as innocent as her husband. But Catherine knew that this was kind of do or die, you know, potentially literally, but not really. Yeah. And she knew that it wasn't only enough to keep Elizabeth sweet, but you had to get everybody on the side. And she understood in a way that I think is pretty impressive to someone of her age, the importance of getting on the side of the Russian people. And we see throughout, and again, we go back to Marie Antoinette, we see where brides were not popular with the people, that that could have a really catastrophic effect. And she essentially set about crafting herself into a Russian so she was originally, um, she, was, she was from Prussia, she was the Holy Roman Empire, but she would devote hours and hours and hours and hours to learning Russian language and Russian culture and Russian tradition because she really wanted the people to look at her, not as an incomer, but as someone who was set on integration mm. and therefore set on becoming a Russian. 
she also, when she arrived, she fell ill very quickly as a result of really the weather. She just couldn't get on with the climate. But she put her faith in Russian doctors. She converted to orthodoxy. So she did. She didn't bring in anyone that she'd known. She did exactly what you would do to kind of integrate, which was become Russian. Um, we see it in the Hanoverians as well, when the Hanoverians were desperate to become British. So mm. it, the wedding was a bit less successful <laughs> than her efforts to become Russian. So they didn't consummate the wedding for a long time because Peter was... I don't know how you put it, but he was mentally too immature. So he wasn't ready. We've seen similar things with Caroline Matilda, or again, Marie Antoinette. She had a lot of bad luck, didn't she? Yeah. So it took him a long time. They set up home together, um, but it was very much a case of sort of like sharing a home, not being married. So we see all the dynastic marriages that turn to love. This was not one of them. Peter eventually consummated his marriage and even took a mistress but Catherine was never particularly bothered because I think Catherine kind of liked the thought that she could get the power and she could you know she could improve herself so she did a lot of studied philosophy she studied huge amounts of say cultural volumes and she corresponded with some great thinkers the sense we get from Catherine is less of sense of being brought in and a marriage and being wide-eyed and wanting to create a happy marriage than someone who if you like saw there was a prize on the horizon and she thought well my husband's not much of a bargain so I'll do that instead. I'll make mm. myself into a great Russian leader. And, you know, it's quite a project, but she was successful. So they do have children. How did the children go? How did the children go? <laughs> um, the children were not all, I'm trying to be tactful here. The children were not all what we would call necessarily of known parent. <laughs> Questionable. Questionable parentage, yeah. Um, Catherine had quite a colourful love life. She was quite open as well in her own memoirs about hinting very strongly that the children weren't Peter's because she obviously wasn't particularly bothered about doing his legacy any great credit. So she had several children. They were certainly raised as though they were husbands and officially they were her husband's. What was interesting about that is we have in a world, you know, royal dynasties where certainly we've seen in the Hanoverian dynasty, questions of paternity sort of threatened to bring down royal marriages, potentially succession crises. But here in Russia, it's a kind of open secret that Hmm. the children of the Tsar are actually the children of his wife's favourites. And I find that really interesting because I think we can think that if the Hanoverians, this happened to the Hanoverians, that this would be a different story. You know, it's really interesting to me to see that she would as well quite blatantly drop massive hints that these children are illegitimate, maybe testament to her own strength of character and her own grip on power. It's one thing to call out the consort, if you're the king, to call out the consort for kind of having a baby with someone else. It's quite another when she's your empress. Mm. And she's incredibly powerful. Yeah. If you say you have the problem as well, going if none of them are official heirs, where'd you go? So instead, mm. it's better to just say they're all official heirs. It's okay, <laughs> and just, we'll just keep going like nobody ever noticed. So we like. Them. So the marriage comes to an end quite, ab- quite abruptly. Can you tell us about the end of the marriage? I like that quite abruptly. What I found when I was researching kind of Russian monarch history of this era is that quite a lot of things, I'm sure you know, come to an end quite abruptly. That everything's fine and then suddenly something happens and it's not fine anymore. So the marriage came to an end with a coup. It came to an end because the wife 
decided she had had enough of her husband and with the help of one of her favourites, Orlov, and his brothers, they decided to oust Peter. And quite remarkably, Peter made it as far as the boat with, you know, his, his um, would-be assailants in hot pursuit. And he thought he'd got away, but he didn't get away. He was fired on at his last chance of escape. Unfortunately, the fleet that could have protected him had changed sides and Catherine had them. So they brought him back. He was arrested and his abdication was forced. Can you imagine? Can you? That's the thing I always think with this. You just can't even imagine it, can you? No. Um, he had, um, and he was transported away to, to basically be kind of like arrested, but just kind of left to languish. And he conveniently died quite relatively quickly afterwards. The official cause was that he had a colic that caused a stroke. Obviously, there were quite a lot of people at the time and as of today that say that it was the kind of stroke that actually means that your captor strangled you. Yeah. Quite a different sort of medical emergency. But yeah, so Peter was um, what an end to a marriage. Peter was overthrown by his wife, kicked out of his realms and then conveniently died. Yeah. Thus leaving Catherine to rule. And they lived happily ever after. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that. A great thank you to Chris, Clemmy, Leia and Catherine for coming onto the podcast today. And thank you listeners for tuning in and catching this episode of If It Ain't Baroque. Like, subscribe and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque Podcast or If It Ain't Baroque History. If you're in London, please join me on one of my walking tours, including the recently launched Royal Love Stories, where we see where these couples lived, loved, married and sometimes died. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and reignoflondon.com. See you next time.